Uh, Father God, we have spent uh, this week getting things done. We've had tasks to do. Our kids have needed to go places. We've had we've had to get things done. So we've been we've been working this week. But God, in this moment, we pause to stop to notice what you are doing, and that in seeing what you are doing, we can we can put the work of our lives in their proper context. God, we can rest. We don't have to run around frantically running our world. That's your job. And so, God, please give us eyes that see, ears that hear, hearts that love you, and are open to the ways you are at work in this world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if we were going to give God a voice, or imagine what God sounded like, I think probably all of us would answer the same way. We would all expect God to sound like one thing, Morgan Freeman. Well, that guy's voice is amazing. He, uh, he could talk about penguins for two hours and it'd be interesting to you, to me. He's got a, a deep, authoritative voice. When he speaks, you stop, you listen. And yet, in this passage, when it's time for God to speak to Elijah, God does not speak to him with authority, with power. Not in a hurricane force wind, not, not in an earthquake, not in a fire. But in a low whisper. Or if you're, you're old school, the King James uh, translates that verse, still small voice. But the Hebrew literally there means uh, a voice of silence, thin as dust. So I like that translation of still small voice. But as I was reading that text this week, I, I wondered why. Why doesn't God speak in the earthquake, in the fire, in the wind? Why why the still, small voice? Why the voice of silence? And if that's how God is to speak, how are, we, how are we to hear that voice? And the answer to those questions, they're all over this text. And I would say in a voice where it can be, can be hard for you and I to hear the voice of God, when we live in a world where we have much to fear and our, our fears, our anxieties could crowd out, the voice of God, or we also, we just live in a world that says there's no God speaking to us. We need this text and its explanation for why, when at times when God speaks, it's not, it's not, with, it's not with authority, it's not, it's not in an earthquake, it's not in power, it's, it's almost silent, it's easy to miss. So why? Why a still small voice? Well, to answer that question, you have to start where Elijah starts, which is in a cave. Now, I've only been to a cave one time in my life. It was uh, Bedford, Indiana, Southern Indiana, Blue Springs Caverns. And I went there with my Boy Scout troop as like a touristy adventure. All right, you go in, they have little boats that take you in, uh, on the rivers that go under the cave. At one point, we crawled to this like one part of the cave where it was like so narrow you could get yourself stuck in between the, the top and the bottom. They shut all the lights off so all the kids would get scared for a minute and you'd see like a, a really a sense of, of, uh, of what, what uh, um, darkness really could be like. And then we slept uh, that night in the cave, it was all fun, and then I bought like a, something at the tourist gift shop on the way out, maybe like a rock or something. And that's what caves are to us. Caves, caves to us are places that sell rocks to Boy Scouts. But that's not what caves were to, to Hebrews. To, to the Hebrew people, caves were, were one of two things. Caves were, were first tombs. It's where you bury dead people. And second, caves where, where you went to run and hide. When someone was, was trying to kill you, when someone was seeking your life and you wanted to be safe, you ran to a cave. 
And that's what Elijah's done. That a couple weeks back, Andrew unpacked for us maybe one of the high moments of all the, the, the Hebrew scriptures where um, God makes one of his most miraculous interventions into human history ever. He sends this miraculous fire onto an offering, um, um, you know, basically spontaneous combustion offering, and everyone is like, oh, God, this God's the real God. And, and that's the, the momentary reaction, but that's not what, what happens after God's miraculous invention. What happens instead is that, that Jezebel, this wicked queen who who worshipped a different God, decides, rather than, than yield to the God who can like some spontaneously light things on fire, which to me seems like a God worth worshipping, um, but instead of worshipping that God, she's going to double down on her own God and promises Elijah, Elijah, I'm going to kill you before, you before I sleep again. That's Jezebel's reaction to God's divine, interact, divine intervention. Elijah's reaction was to run into the wilderness and to fall down and, and to ask God to kill him. God gives him something to eat. He gives him rest. Now Elijah's gotten up from that moment, and he's run to a cave because his life is still in danger. His life is threatened, and he is hiding. And so God chases Elijah down, finds him in his cave, and he asks Elijah a question. Elijah, what are you doing here? Why are you in a cave? And here's how Elijah answers that question. I've been very jealous for you, for the Lord, the God of hosts. But the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. And they seek my life too to take it away. And do you want to know I'm in a cave? Elijah says to God. I'm, I'm in a cave because you're losing everywhere. Your people have given up on you. They've, they've thrown down their altars. They, they're not worshiping you anymore. They've abandoned you. Your prophets, the, one who actually, the, the people who actually are faithful to you, God, they, they're being murdered in the streets. They're dying because they serve you. And so I have stopped fighting, God, because it looks like you have stopped fighting. I've retreated because, God, everything I see around me is that you have retreated as well. And a lot of commentators give Elijah a hard time for this answer. They see in what he's saying a lot of self-pity. Um, and there's, there's certainly some truth to that. God doesn't want Elijah in a cave, which is why he asks Elijah, why are you in a cave? You shouldn't be in this cave. And yet, I, I have a more compassionate view towards what Elijah is experiencing. I mean, everything, everything around him looks like he's about to die. And the only thing he's fighting for, God himself, is nowhere to be found. Even though he's just had this miraculous intervention of this, this spontaneous fire, God is not saving his own people. So why should Elijah keep fighting? And so Elijah has run because his fear has overwhelmed him, and he's, he's hiding for his life. And I think if, if you've never been in that place, if you've never been in the place where you have been so afraid, or you have, everything you put your hope in is, has failed you, Unless you've been there, you, you, maybe you can look down on Elijah, but if you've been there, if you've been afraid, if everything you put your trust and your hope in has seemed to have failed you, you a cave is actually the perfect place to run. And transparently, that, that's where I've been the last, the last four months of my own life. That easily the last four have been the hardest of my life. And I started out pretty strong um, 
the first couple weeks when we, when we heard very hard news about, about one of our kids, um, I started out strong. But this, it was just exhausting. And, and what I found, I didn't even, I don't think I, I realized this until I got into this text and I sat down to begin to read this text that, that I understood God was asking me the same question. Tim, wh- why are you hiding? Why are you so afraid? And I think I would answer the question the same way that Elijah would have, the way he answered the question, which is, God, I, I don't want to fight because it looks like you don't want to fight. And why? Why should I put myself out if you're not going to put yourself out? And so Elijah says this. He gives his complaint. And then God tells Elijah to come out, out of the cave. He's going to, he wants to speak to Elijah. But what's interesting is Elijah doesn't move. And I think we'll know that. A verse I'll show you in later. Uh, but, but Elijah doesn't leave the cave. He stays in the cave. And, and what begins to happen is that a wind so strong comes, it begins to knock the rocks around the entrance of the cave, but God's not in that wind. An earthquake begins to shake the ground, which I, I, I've only experienced one earthquake in my life. I slept through it, so that should, apparently earthquakes don't, don't affect me to some extent. But I can imagine being in a cave would be a, a terrifying place for an earthquake. Is the ground over you going to crash in on you, but God, God wasn't in the earthquake. That's not his voice. And then a fire appears. A, fi- a symbol Elijah would have been uh, pretty, pretty uh, obvious to him. He had just witnessed God in a fire, but God's not in the fire either. Then there's silence, stillness, and a still, small voice. So why? Why a still small voice. And I think in, in one sense, the answer is obvious. So what, what do you do when a child has a nightmare? What do you do when a friend comes to you in tears, when they're afraid of what's to come? What do you do when someone that you love is, is terrified? I hope you don't say much. I hope you extend your presence. And if you say anything, it's, it's soft. It's still like a whisper. And God speaks this way, I think, first, to calm Elijah's fears. Elijah, you don't have to run for your life. Come out of the cave. I want to speak to you. I have a word for you. Elijah, come out. In verse 13, I think this is when Elijah moves. He's in the cave, and now, verse 13, here's what happens. When Elijah heard it, when he heard the still small voice, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out. And stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? This morning, are you in a place of fear? That you want to run away from the life that God calls you to? Because listen, I think one of the, the worst things the church in our culture has taught over the last several decades is that the life of faith is an easier life or a better life than a life of outside of faith. I think that's... That's categorically false. I think if you follow Jesus, your life should get more difficult on you. Because if you follow Jesus, you're called to the same life, the same fight that he has entered into. Of loving your neighbor, of caring for the vulnerable, of seeking the good of the people around you. The people that most others want to overlook and forget. You're called to seek for for justice and for the good of the city. To fight against people who are oppressors. That loving people who are difficult to love, you're called into a very different Life that is, is more of a fight than a, a walk of ease in 
to heaven. And the reality is you and I will fail at that. That will be a hard life to live into. The life of faith is not an easy life to live. And yet, we should not be people of fear. We should be people of of courage. With the assumption that even when it looks like God has left the fight, even when God's, God's work in our lives or work in this world is not immediately evidenced to us or it's not clear to us, we know he hasn't given up on us. And in that moment, when God's still small voice, still small voice speaks to Elijah, he, he comes out of his cave and he faces the voice of, of God. So the, the first reason why God's, why God's voice is often still and small to us is because we're, we're terrified creatures who are supposed to live a life that, that faces down our own Jezebels, things that should lead us into fear, and yet we should not run to a cave, we should fight with courage. I mean, that, so that's one reason why, why God speaks in a still small voice, but that's not the main reason in this passage. There's another reason why God speaks like this. So if you notice, God asks the same question to Elijah twice. And if you notice, the, the, the passage almost works in, in parallels. That you have God, he comes and he asks Elijah the question, what are you doing here? Elijah then gives the same answer both times. Word for word, same answer. Uh, God, I left the fight because you've left the fight. And then in the first, the first uh, parallel, uh, God's still small voice speaks. And in the second parallel, God says something different, a second thing. And that's important because in Hebrew writing often, uh, parallels are how you, you begin to understand what the author is saying. And so um, what happens is the second parallel sort of adds clarity to the first parallel. So in the first parallel, God speaks in a still small voice. In the second, uh, second uh, you know, transition or parallel where this happens, God is explaining what he means by the still small voice to Elijah. And it's going to be confusing to us, but I want to read God's second answer to Elijah um, at risk for like what in the world's going on here. But... But I want to say here again, this is what God is, wants Elijah to understand, wants him to see. Verse 15. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Yehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Mahalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall put Yehu to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Yehu shall, put Elijah, shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now, it's totally okay if you heard everything I just said, and like, I have no idea what's happening right now. So somebody, coffee, like, help. Um, that's okay. Uh, lots of names, lots of weird folks. Um, but, but let me break this down. Because um, God is telling Elijah to do two things here. First, Elijah is to anoint two kings, Hazael over Syria, Yehu over Israel. And this... This is, this is sub, first supposed to be encouraging to Elijah because one of Elijah's primary enemies is Ahab, who's the king over Israel. And so for Elijah to go and anoint Yehu, the new king, is God saying to Elijah, I'm going to take care of Ahab. I'm going to kill your enemy. Yehu's going to be king soon. You don't need to, the person you're afraid of, you don't need to be afraid of. So this is the first thing, anoint your replacement. And yet, that's not really great news because Yehu was going to be, I mean, basically like his name sounds, uh, he was a Yehu, he's an evil guy. He's a bad dude. Hazael is a bad guy. He's, God is anointing people who are evil to be kings. The second thing that God tells Elijah to do is to anoint Elisha, his, sort of his helper, and uh, to be his successor. And that there are still 7,000 people left in Israel who have not worshipped a false god. And again, that's encouraging. Elijah, you're not alone. You're not by yourself. There are people 
who are going to join this fight with you. And yet, at the same time, it's like, well, why not? Elisha's a good person. There are 7,000 people who, who haven't worshipped a false god. Why not make one of them king? Why not give them power? How's that good news? And yet, this answer is a breakthrough for Elijah. This gets him out of his cave and back into the fight. And do you know why? Because God's, God's still small voice. It's not just about calming Elijah's fear. What God's saying in this narrative is that, that Elijah, I run, I run my universe with a still small voice. My sovereign plan for, for all of history, it's, it's not an earthquake. It's not, it's not a fire. It's not a wind. It is, it is a still, small voice. So I want to unpack what that means. And I want to unpack it in three, three statements. That when God, when God runs his universe, and I believe that. I believe he runs this world. It, it, it means three things. That one, he's slower than we like. He's quieter than we expect. And he's always doing more than we see. So first, God, he's slower than we like. And so Elijah, he sees the world around him. God's prophets are being killed. Jezebel, everyone who hates God basically is getting richer and life is getting better for, for them. And so his assumption is God's plan isn't working. So he runs and he hides. And listen, there, there are many reasons why you and I can run and hide in our own lives. I've got mine, you've got yours. But at root of every reason why we run in fear is this, this conviction we have that God does not know what he's doing. Or his plan is, is out of control. That our suffering, that our pain, that the, the, the life that we enter into that we don't want to experience, it's, it's random, it's meaningless. And so that we can believe, we can begin to believe that there's no way God can redeem our suffering into salvation. And so when God's plan makes no sense to us, we want to run. We want to hide. And yet, and I, I think that's okay to feel that way, but I, it's... And I'm asking my, myself this question. But there's a question we, we have to ask ourselves when we begin to think this. Which is, do you really think that we should be able to completely understand the sovereign plan of the universe that God has? I can't speak for you. I'll speak for me. So just let me preach to myself for a minute. I, I, I have three kids. They're five, three, and one. Um, it is really hard for me to, to feed them lunch. Like, there's a lot of planning that goes involved in feeding three kids. Um, you're getting out vegetables. You're getting out fruit. You're putting a sandwich together. Meanwhile, they're fighting. They're going to war with each other. They're finding weapons, trying to kill one another. They're screaming. There's loud noises. I'm just trying to get lunch on the table. And that plan to go from chaos to three kids eating at a table together is almost impossible for me to accomplish. And I bet you have your own thing that you, you try to plan, or maybe you're a great planner, but every time you plan something, you, get, you got all your ducks in a row, then you get to the moment, and everything falls apart, and you're scrambling, you're trying to pull it together. Listen, if you and I can't plan, if I can't feed three kids without chaos and, and difficulty, I, there's probably a good chance I'm not going to understand the sovereign creator plan to save as many people as he can. I'm not. I'm not. I can't. And I promise you, there will be moments in your life when you will look at the life around you and you will say, nothing good can come from this. But you don't know, and I don't know. And so we can't run to our cave. We can't hide. In those moments, pause and, and reflect. You can't, you can't plan lunch for your kids. You don't, you don't know what God is doing. He's slower than we like, so wait, wait for him. He runs his universe with a still, small voice. 
But it's not just that his plan is, is slow. It's that his plan is quieter than we expect. I, my own life, I didn't begin taking my faith seriously until I was a sophomore in, in high school. And, and then I sort of had a, got, got invaded my life in a unique way. But most of my friends at that time, they were not Christians. And so I really wanted God to do something similar for my friends that he had done for my own life. Like, make, God, make yourself real to my friends. And I actually remember thinking... Like 1 Kings 18, the story where God spontaneously combusts uh, a fire. Um, it's like, God, do something like that. Like, you know, light the Coke machine on fire one Friday at, at school. Like, make, make, your, make yourself obvious to, to my friends. And I prayed that and, and just thought, the reason my friends don't believe is because God hasn't made himself visible enough to them. And that's why people don't believe. And in my own life right now, I'm saying, God, to face some of the things I'm facing in life, I need more visible demonstration of you. And I think we pray that often. And, and listen, I think... Maybe, you're, maybe that's where you are, you're, where, you're on, where you're at this morning, is that you, you're open to belief in God, but you need to see more evidence that there is a God. If there is a God, he should speak up, he should make himself more known, he should speak with an earthquake. Or maybe you, like me, you're a Christian, you're praying through this season, like, God, if I'm going to get through this, you're going to you're gonna have to speak up for me. I'm going I'm to have to hear more than what I'm hearing now. And listen, th- those are good prayers to pray, keep praying them, and it, it makes sense, but they... Don't forget the story of Elijah and Ahab. That when God is loudest in the story of Elijah Elijah and Ahab, it's the least effective moment in the entire story. When God lights everything on fire, and there's there's no doubt in anyone's mind who is God and who is real and who is not, all that that means is those who didn't believe got more violence and angrier and doubled down on their unbelief. And Elijah, who did believe, ran in depression and sadness and wanted to die. And this isn't the only story in the scriptures like this. When the louder God speaks, the more people oppose him. There's a man named Jesus who the New Testament says was the son of God. The more he spoke, the more danger he became. And finally was put on a cross, was killed. So if, if, if in this morning you... You say, if I'm going to believe in God or if I'm going to trust God, I need him to speak up for me. I just want to say, is, will that really do what you think it would do? Because I think there's, there's a couple other things we need to ask ourselves first, which is, is first, do, do we really want to hear God? Now, be honest. Do you really want God's voice to start telling you, telling you what to do? How to treat your kids, how to how to spend your money, how to think about the people you work with. Do you, do you really want that? One of my, my favorite uh, quotes is Thomas Nagel. He was a, an atheist, a philosopher. Um, he said this in one of his, his books. He said, I want atheism to be true and it made easy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my, my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And he goes on to say why. And the reason why is like, he's, like there's things I'm doing that if there's a God, I have to stop doing. And I don't want to stop doing those things. So I don't want there to be a God. And listen, I, I respect that intellectual credibility. And I want to be clear. I'm not just speaking to people who don't believe in God in this room. I'm a pastor. So I'm, I'm around a lot of Christians who do not want to hear from God either. And there are moments when, like, what God has said is, like, crystal clear. It's not one of, like, the gray areas. It's, like, one of the things, like, God was, like, explicitly, like, never do that thing. And people are like, you know, help me pray because I think I want to do that thing. And I don't know what God wants. It's like, well, he said directly, don't do that thing. 
And listen, I know a lot of Christians, can I just, I don't want to hear from God all the time. This week I spent three days by myself, and by day two, the um, three days to pray, to reflect, to think. And by day two, it's like, just give me anyone else to talk to. Someone less intimidating, someone less threatening, someone who can't, can't invade into my heart and say, don't do that, do this. Don't go that way, go this way. I don't want that. <laughs> I, I resist it. And if, listen, if, if Christians who have yielded themselves over to God, if we, if we do that, there's something deep within us that if God was to shout at you today, would, would you yield in faith or would you... Would you run away and, 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 and reject him harder? There is something in, in us humans we do not want to hear from God, and we need, we need to be honest about that. Which means when he speaks. It's often why he doesn't speak in an earthquake, in a fire. Because all it's going to do is, is raise the fight. Right? Those of you with close friends or a spouse, some of the worst things you can do with a spouse is, is, is fight at the wrong moment or raise attention at the wrong moment. Because it's not going to lead to any, any grace or any resolution. So that's often why God speaks in a still, small voice. He, he's trying to save us. He could prove that he exists to, to any of us at any moment. That's not his aim. His aim is to save us. And so when do you really, do you really want to hear from God first? And second, can you seek him? And one of the Psalms I, I've been holding on to in my life right now is, is Psalm 9. And there's the turn of the Psalm when it goes from kind of some despair to more hopefulness. Um, Psalm 9, it says, those, those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. And clearly what the psalmist was saying in that moment is that he had gone in a long period of life where God was not real to him, where he was not present, he was not hearing the voice of God. And finally, one day, the still small voice broke through and he heard. And so I would say this, if... If you're someone who's saying, I want to believe, and I, the voice isn't loud enough, I'm not hearing it, I don't have enough, can I just say, if, if that's true, God will not forsake you. Keep seeking, don't give up, keep listening, keep chasing, keep going. The Lord will not forsake those who seek, seek him. We see that with Elijah. Elijah ran away from God. And God chased him down, found him in his cave, and pulled him out. But that raises a question. How, how can we know God will not forsake those who seek him? So whether, listen, if you're a Christian this morning and you're, you're saying, I, I need more to trust God to move forward. If you're not, if you're not a Christian and you're saying, you know, I'm interested, I, maybe, I need more. If that's where you are, and, you're, and I'm saying to you, do not stop seeking. God will not forsake you. The reason that's true is, is the third thing. is God is always doing more than you and I can see. He's slower than we like. He's quieter than we like, he's, but he's always doing more than what we, what we see. And the reality is Elijah is only taking a surface level look at his world. Jezebel is winning. Uh, the, the evil kings of the world have power. The prophets of God are being, are being killed. They're in hiding. Elijah's own death seems imminent. And so people for centuries have said, look at this world. Look at all the evil around us. Look at everything happening in this place. There cannot be a God running things. And yet, the, the, the witness of the scriptures is God is always doing more than you and I see. And I can almost promise you that if you and I, 2,000 years ago, were on a hill outside Jerusalem called Calvary, if we had watched a young teacher who had healed the sick, who had spoken up for the forgotten in society, who had good news for the poor, who promised to save and to give grace to those who thought they were furthest 
from God. If we had watched that man, Jesus, be crucified on a cross, we would have definitely concluded nothing good could come from this. What a waste. An innocent man killed. And yet in that moment, God was literally providing salvation means for the entire universe. God is always doing more than you and I can see. He speaks. He runs this universe in a still, small voice. And Jesus is the definitive proof of that. Because when it, it, when it came time for God to speak his most definitive word, the most important word he would ever say, the most important thing he would ever say to us, Jesus, the Son of God, the Word of God, Jesus himself, his life was a still, small voice. He did not come to condemn and conquer us. He came as a child. He worked most of his life as a carpenter. He went to a cross, convinced he was dying for you and for me. His voice silenced by the ones who did not want God speaking to them anymore. And he did all that to save you and to save me. And if that's how he saved us, through an event that looked like God's purposes had been defeated and that there was no hope moving forward. If that's how, you, how God saved the world, if Jesus was killed by the Jezebel of his own day, and yet salvation still sprung from that ground, what do you and I have to fear? What are you afraid of? What could you lose that Jesus couldn't give back to you? This passage is an invitation for you and I to, to exit the cave and enter into a life of faith, a life of trust, even when God's voice is still and small and not an earthquake, not a wind, not power. And so this morning, I invite you to come, come out of your cave. Come out of a life of fear and into a life of faith. That there is, there's only one cave mentioned in all the New Testament. It's my favorite story. I mean, I probably say this a lot, but I think this is really my favorite story in the New Testament. Um, it was a tomb. It was Jesus' good friend named Lazarus who lay dead inside. And Jesus spoke at the entrance of that cave. Lazarus, come out. And that same voice that speaks to you and I this morning, that still small voice that most people in his own day overlooked, it, it reached into that tomb and it pulled Lazarus out of death and back in to life, and that same, that same voice speaks to you this morning. The voice that pulled Elijah terrified out of his cave, the voice that pulled Lazarus dead out of his cave. It may be still, it may be silent, but it speaks to save you, and it can. Let us pray. God, I recognize the inadequacy of my own words to, to have the power that your words had to Elijah in that moment to call him out of a life of fear and into a life of faith. And God, I recognize I don't have the power in my words that Jesus had to call Lazarus out of the tomb. And yet I speak in faith knowing you are still speaking to every person in this room. God, you are seeking them. And so God, would you give us, whether we believe or not, would you give us hearts to seek you? And God, may we seek you, seek you long enough until we find it's, it's you who's been seeking us all along. You sent your son to find us. You send your voice after us, God. We, we want to hear. Give us ears, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.